Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. In recent weeks, I have zoomed in on physician-assisted suicide as an imminent threat to the vulnerable among us, to the integrity of medicine, and to civilization itself. Massachusetts is an ongoing battleground in this culture war, which has not yet succumbed to the culture of death with respect to physician-assisted suicide, but has ceded much ground in other important areas. Perhaps the most important loss of ground is the disaster of the codification of Roe v. Wade into Massachusetts state law at the very time that the infamous Supreme Court decision of 1973 is on the verge of being tossed into the ash heap of history where it belongs. Today, though, I want to shift gears and zoom out to get a larger perspective on the devolution of our culture and try to understand how we arrived at this point in history over the last 50 years and what we can do to reverse this cultural slide into the abyss. To explore the roots of this cultural rot, I will be focusing on a brilliant book by Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, Ph.D., who is the founder of the Ruth Institute, a nonprofit organization founded to expose and address the lies created by the sexual revolution over the last 50 years. The title of her most recent book, which we will be discussing, is The Sexual State, How Elite ideologies are destroying lives and why the church was right all along. That is a mouthful. Let me repeat it. The title of the book is The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. The book can be found on the website ruthinstitute.org. That's Ruth Institute. Dot O-R-G. The name Ruth means grace, and the Ruth Institute and the book we will be discussing is a grace to all of us. I think everyone listening to this podcast should have a copy of this book, which can be purchased on her website. It is a roadmap to saving society. An introduction to the book can be found on its cover, and it reads as follows. The sexual revolution and the breakdown of the family has brought misery to millions. Now, Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse shows that the sexual revolution did not just happen like a force of nature. Rather, it was deliberately created by so-called elites harnessing the power of the state, allowing them to inflict three false and calamitous ideologies, contraception, 
divorce, and gender that have led to widespread and profound unhappiness and worse. The ideas of the sexual revolution did not emerge from the lived experiences of ordinary people. The government has been imposing the morality of an out-of-touch elite class on the rest of us for decades. The sexual state turns the conventional wisdom on its head to reveal how, one, the sexual revolution is and always has been a creation of the state. Two, social issues are unified and can be understood as an outgrowth of a few simple but gravely flawed principles. Three, the sexual revolution hides its totalitarian objectives behind seemingly modest demands. Four, children have identity and relational rights with respect to their parents and how the sexual state denies children these rights. Socially conservative ideas and traditional Catholic morality are getting clobbered. And the dirty secret that no one wants to acknowledge until now is that the progressive social elites have rigged the system. Most people don't love abortion or divorce or single-parent families. Thankfully, Dr. Morris and the Catholic Church have the answer. It is vital that those who would change the culture understand how we got here. Otherwise, the countering tactics will remain impotent. In this masterful takedown of the sexual revolution and its promoters, Dr. Morris calls for a widespread adherence to the principles of the church. Only then will our society recover from the misrule of the so-called elites and the managerial class. Dr. Jennifer Roback Morris earned her Ph.D. in economics in 1980 and taught at Yale University and George Mason University before forming the Ruth Institute. Today you will hear part one of my interview with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse as she discusses how she went from being an economics professor to being an author and culture warrior. Before we continue, let us pray. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, a prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls. Will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life? O oh God, you have provided a roadmap for us as to how to live our lives. The rules of that road are contained in your divine word written in scripture and written in our hearts. Lord, your design for salvation history is rooted in families 
which begin as the one flesh union of man and woman and results in children who are best raised in the sanctuary of that union. Help us to understand that it is the evil one who seeks to destroy us by destroying this sanctuary. Help us to defend the family and so defend ourselves and our culture from the evil one. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now here is part one of my interview with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. Joining me now is Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. Dr. Morse is the founder of the Ruth Institute, an interfaith international coalition to defend the family and build a civilization of love. The website is ruthinstitute.org. Dr. Morris was campaign spokeswoman for California's winning Proposition 8 campaign, uh, defining marriage as the union of a man and a woman. And we'll spend a little bit of time uh, talking about that uh, during our conversation. She's authored or co-authored six books and spoken around the globe on marriage, family, and human sexuality. Her book has been translated into Spanish, Chinese, Korean, Polish, and Chukis, which is the native language of the Micronesian Islands in the South Pacific. Her latest book, The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along, is uh, really a title that grabbed me, and this is what we're going to be uh, spending most of our time uh, discussing. She's written five other books, which I... uh, I'll just uh, read you the titles, which are also pretty uh, attention-grabbing, and you can find them on the uh, website, um, ruthinstitute.org. And they are 101 Tips for Marrying the Right Person, 101 Tips for a Happier Marriage, The Sexual Revolution and Its Victims, Smart Sex, Finding Lifelong Love in a Hookup World, and my second favorite one, Uh, besides the one we're talking about today, is love and economics. It takes a family to raise a village, which I assume is a response to Hillary Clinton's uh, book, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. Dr. Morse earned her Ph.D. at the University of Rochester and taught economics at Yale and at George Mason Universities. Dr. Morse was named one of the Catholic stars of 2013 on a list that included Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI. Dr. Morris and her husband are parents of an adopted child, a birth child, a goddaughter, and were foster parents for San Diego County to eight foster children. That must have kept you very busy. In uh, 2015, Dr. Morris and her husband relocated to Lake Charles, Louisiana, where the work of the Ruth Institute uh, continues. So welcome to this uh, podcast, uh, Dr. Morse. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I, uh, I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, well, it's, it's very exciting to um, be able to speak with you. I find we have a lot in common. I think we're both uh, baby boomers. 
We're yep. both we're both Catholic. We both have families. Both of us are fortunately survivors of the sexual revolution of the 60s. And when I saw the title of the book, I said, I got to read that book. And when I was reading through it, I found myself saying, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I agree. <laughs> well, that's a good sign when a reader right. feels that way about your book. Yeah, because you, you, you really articulated some of my own kind of uh, amorphous uh, impressions uh, about the culture. Yes. But um, before we actually start talking about the book, I wanted to ask you how you went from being an economics professor at Yale and George Mason University to founding the Ruth Institute, uh, which you described as an interfaith international coalition to defend the family and build a civilization of love. How did that transformation occur? Well, the, the short answer is children. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that's the short answer. Um, we adopted a little boy in 1991 who had been for two and a half years in a Romanian orphanage. Mm. And then six months later, we gave birth to our baby girl. And so we had two children six months apart mm. who were three years apart in chronological age. And what that did for us, my husband and I, I'm an economics professor, my husband's an engineer. You know, we're kind of nerdy people, you know, <laughs> not, not, nothing prepared us for what we were about to deal with. Yeah. Let's put it that way, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we were so not prepared. Um, but, but what it did was to show us um, we basically had a controlled experiment in our in our household, and we basically saw, wow, kids really do need their parents. Yeah, this is what happens when you don't have parents, you know. The, the, and and our boy, it's it's sad, but but true that all of the kids that came out of the Eastern European orphanages at the, at the time, they all had the same set of problems. Mark, mm -hmm. you know, they they all had speech delays, they all had social delays. Some of them had um, occupational therapy needs, you know, they had um, tactile sensitivity, they had, they had a whole variety of problems that, of course, I didn't know anything about as an economics professor, yeah, so I yeah. had to get a short, real yeah. quick course. But, but what it taught us is that kids really need their parents, and because of my social science training, I start looking around me and thinking, you know what, if kids really need their parents, this society is really set up all wrong. I mean, yeah. we, we've We've got things going that are creating incentives for people to do all the wrong things mm -hmm. that are not going to help kids whatsoever. And, it, of course, in economics, incentives is what we study, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's kind of all we got. Now, yeah, you, know, right. you know, when you get right down to it. Um, and, and so I started, as the kids got older and um, the kind of hands-on parenting became a little less intense, uh, I started thinking about that in a systematic way and started writing about it. And the, the book you mentioned, Love and Economics, that was the first book that I ever wrote. And, and it was really a book about motherhood mm -hmm. and, and why kids need their mommies and why mommies need the backup of a daddy, you know, yeah. because yeah. what you're doing there, with the, the bonding and the attachment that takes place between a mother and child is so significant, um, not just for that child, but for the whole society, because if it doesn't get done, if mom doesn't do it, the substitutes are really, really bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's just a fact there, yeah. you know. I mean, adoptive mother is a great substitute for biological mother. Right. But it way goes downhill fast after that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so that's, that's what got me interested in the topic. And by 2008, the kids were getting older. You know, they were, they were finishing high school and whatnot, and I'm thinking about my next move. 
uh, and basically decided that the best thing to do would be to start my own organization focused on what I thought was important to focus on, you know, rather than try to go back and find find another academic job or something like that. I was probably that probably wasn't going to happen for mm-hmm. a lot of reasons. So that's how I started the Ruth Institute. You know, I just saw a need for an organization that would focus specifically on the role of marriage and family in creating a stable environment for children and why that's so important. So that's pretty much how it happened. Yeah. Well, so your 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 full-time professional job became uh, children, your children, and how the culture uh, affects them. Yes. I did take time off, you know, this this was a this is another aspect of, of my life that that I did take time out of the labor force to stay home with my kids and I worked I had a part time job at Hoover Institution at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that was a whole kind of dramatic thing too, because I was trying like anything to do a full time job in part time hours. Yeah. You know, when the kids arrived I was I had a tenured position at George Mason. And everybody thinks, oh, academic life is so flexible, it's yeah. great, it's, it's easy. Um, but it, there was nothing easy about it. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, my plan had been to put the kids in daycare. Well, you can't put a orphan yeah. into daycare, you know? I mean, I right, tried, right. which was, you know, it was crazy. But I, uh, but, um, <laughs> I, yeah. I soon learned that, that my plan was not going to work. So I had, I had jumped ship out of academic life and, you know, walked away from a tenured position, which, as you probably know, no sane person ever does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then, then as a, my commitment then was to work part-time. And I went to the Hoover Institution when we moved out to Silicon Valley. My husband moved us out to Silicon Valley. Um, and I said to the director of the Hoover Institute, I said, you know, I need, I need to be a quarter time. That's really all I can manage. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, this is the easiest job interview I've ever done. <laughs> Boom, I will take you as on part-time basis. And he came up with a salary for me that was a quarter of what he thought I was worth full-time. And and it was it was wonderful. I mean, I'm extremely grateful yeah. to John Razian and the Hoover Institution mm-hmm. for the flexibility that they showed to me. So, so instead of uh, kind of farming out the kids to daycare, you sort of farmed out part of your uh, family life, and that that kind of you know comes through when I was uh, looking at your website, the RuthInstitute.org, and right off the right off the top, you made some very strong statements about children and families, and I'd like to read three of them and uh, get you to comment on those. All right. So the the three that hit me as soon as I opened the webpage was, all people have the right to know their cultural heritage and genetic identity. The second one was, every child has a right to a relationship with his or her natural mother and father, except for an unavoidable tragedy. And the third, we reject the idea that a child is a problem. And this is what I heard all the time in, in um, my you know, medical practice and all of the, uh, the fallout that occurred with families. Uh, we reject the idea that a child is a problem to solve if you don't want one and an object to be purchased if you do want one. Those are three very insightful statements. I wonder if you could expand on those. Well, uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm a radical on the position that kids need their parents. Yeah, and, I mean, I just and I, you know, Mark, I can make these strong statements because doggone it, I know I'm right. 
<laughs> I know I'm right. And I don't care what anybody says. I mean, the truth is, are you going to sit here and tell me kids don't need their parents? Yeah, yeah. Well, what is this, you yeah. know? Or that they don't care whether it's their biological parent or, or, or adoptive parents. Adopted kids care a lot, you know, and, that, and adoption's the best case scenario mm-hmm. in, in, many, in many respects. I mean, not in all respects, obviously. They're, they're, but we have all these permutations of family disruption, you know, of, the, of disrupting the relationship between the parent and the child. Mm-hmm. The thing about adoption is that adoption is something that we do to help the child have the parents that he or she needs. And it's a backup plan when things go wrong. Many of the other things we're doing are basically things that allow the adults to do whatever they feel like with the assumption that the kids will be fine. The kids are resilient. They'll be fine. They'll yeah, get over it. Right. You know, and it's, it's simply not true. And yeah. so we at some point made the decision. I, well, that, that's a whole story how we figured that out, how we figured it all out. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we at the Ruth Institute, we approach everything from, from the perspective of the child. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, when you say to yourself, okay, what is owed to the child? What is owed to children? Um, you come to realize very quickly that that is a radically countercultural statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and you come to see that, um, that so many of the things that we're doing really are simply about adult comfort and convenience. And we're, assume, we're assuming that the adults are snowflakes and will melt at the slightest provocation, mm-hmm. while the children are so resilient they'll, that they'll be fine. Yeah. And so if you start with the position that children are entitled to a relationship with their parents unless something unavoidable happens, right? Mm-hmm. If you start with that assumption and then start reasoning back from that, you know, you take that as your starting position and then reason outward from that, where you end up, Mark, is with traditional Christian sexual morality. Mm-hmm. That's where you end up, because uh, you find that to preserve the child's right to the parents, you need to have a commitment on board that you're only going to have sex with the person you're married to, mm. and you're not going to have sex before after or during marriage with anybody other than the person yeah, you're married yeah. to, you know? Well, uh, j- and <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's 100% logical, perfectly yeah. logical well, to, to think that way. I was so. thinking as you, as you talk, Jennifer, you must get into a lot of trouble saying things like that. Oh, sure, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, <laughs> wait, when I was, um, um, before I went to medical school, I was in social work school, and so I was around a, a bunch yeah. of... Uh, a bunch of liberal people, and they would say things like, like, uh, I can't think that the only reason to have children are selfish reasons. And I was like, what, you know, what are you talking about? You know, well, because well, well, because you want children well, 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 to fulfill well, well, your own needs, you know? Wow, wow. <laughs> and so I would hear things like that, and then it hear things like, if you're having trouble in your marriage, staying together for the children is is not a good reason to stay together when in yep. when in fact it's it's the best reason to stay together it actually is yes 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 and in fact the social science disproves that by the way mm-hmm. um, you know in other words if, if you examine the data how do children fare after divorce you know you yeah. find out very quickly that divorce is very difficult on children and and in fact mark there is no serious dispute about that within the social science literature okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can read that stuff till your eyes go blind and you will find that divorce is hard on children that the married couple intact biological family is the gold standard for children's 
outcomes yeah. on any outcome that you want to measure. And including people have even studied, well, what about if there's conflict in the marriage? Well, if there's high conflict, if people are throwing pots and pans yeah. and beating each other and stuff, okay, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the kids do better if the parents divorce. But in general, in general, the vast majority of divorces do not involve that, mm-hmm. you know, and, right. and what no fault divorce did in this, as you know, you read the book, The, uh, the Sexual State, mm-hmm. um, when the state redefined marriage from being a lifelong, permanent, sexually exclusive union to being something else, <laughs> yeah. which no fault divorce did and you know, turned it into something else. The main thing that was affected was the low conflict marriage, mm-hmm. right? That that was enshrining the idea that uh, you don't have to stick it out for the for the sake of the kids. Yeah, yep. that that was the law coming down on that. Because what, what people forget is that you could always get a divorce for cause, even under um, the darkest, most benighted medieval days of the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> right. You could get divorced for cause. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and um, so so yeah, there are a lot of myths out there. Uh, and, we, and we spend a certain amount of our time uh, busting the myths, which, mm-hmm. you know, which is really a kind of propaganda uh, that's out there supporting mm-hmm. the sexual revolution. That's a turns out to be a big part of the work of the Ruth Institute is to deal with that stuff. Yeah, I, I remember um, in in my state in Massachusetts, uh, it was Governor Mike Dukakis who eventually ran for president, who brought no fault divorce to our state, uh-huh. and and. Uh, you know, at the time, it seemed like, oh, this is, isn't this an enlightened thing to do when it mm-hmm. when it just turned out to be a disaster? Yes, yes. You know, one of the one of the people who, in in, in a way, is a, a kind of um, a kind of tragic heroine um, is a person named um, Judith Wallerstein, because Judith, and she was a psychologist, psychiatrist. I forget exactly, mm-hmm. um, but she, you know, she believed in no fault divorce. She thought it was a great thing, yeah. you know, and she pioneered it and so on. And um, I, I one time met people in San Francisco whose whose marriages had broken up because she had told them that that this was a fine thing to do and it would mm-hmm. be all good. But she then turned around and started studying the children, and she literally had a twenty five year project where she was tracking the children of divorce. And she found out within the first 10 years that, hey, guess what? They don't just get over it the day after yesterday, yeah. you know, the very next day. They do not get over it. And in fact, the problems get worse in some respects um, as they get older in the sense that not that, the ki- not that the kids fall apart or get worse or whatever, but the, but the problems that when you go to form your own relationships, when you go to form your own marriages and you're, you're embarking on all that, the way Judith Wallerstein put it is that the problems crescendo mm-hmm. in young adulthood. Yeah, they yeah. don't go away. No, they, don't they go absolutely away. don't. So people know this, Mark, people know this, but they will not say it. You know, it drives me crazy. This concludes part one of my interview with Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. Tune in next time when we will further discuss how the cultural elites have continued in their attempt to destroy the family for their own totalitarian ends. And until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. First Do No Harm with Dr. Mark Rollo is produced at WQPH 89.3 FM, Shirley, 
Richburg. We are very happy to share it with other networks. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.